stand here desperately in need of being changed by you. There's, a, there's many things tonight that we're going to talk about, Lord, that they could easily go into our minds and fail to come into our heart. And God, we don't want that. We desire that tonight you would be impressing these things on us. Help us to be not only well-intentioned and, and well-learned and have a, a mind filled with information, but also a heart full of zeal to do these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in, in order to ensure that we get off on the right foot here, um, let's make sure that we all agree on our terms. I want to start out by asking and answering the question, what is evangelism? Because sometimes people use different uh, descriptions of what this is. We want to make sure that we know what we're talking about here. So one of the best ways to begin to define something is occasionally to strip away what it's not. Take away all those things on the outside or on the outskirts so you can get right down to the meat, right to the center of what this thing is. So first, let's clarify what evangelism is not. Evangelism is not simply caring for someone's physical or emotional needs. Soup kitchens are great. Homeless shelters are important. Mercy ministries are good things. But these things are not intrinsically in and of themselves evangelistic in nature. It is possible, and I've actually seen this many times as I've been involved in a lot of these, I've seen it happen where somebody will feed a person's body but completely ignore their soul. It is possible for somebody to get a bowl of soup and a little biscotti and then walk away and never be confronted with the fact that their soul is on its way to hell. These things are good, not necessarily evangelistic. Let me give you a quick example. Sometimes these things are necessary. I used to be a missionary in Brazil, and when I was in, a, uh, in that mission, I was serving along some of the poorest, most low, in terms of like uh, socioeconomic status, some of the lowest of the low in the Western Hemisphere, some in, in maybe in the world. Uh, these people who lived in favelas, which are basically a bunch of lean-tos all piled and made up of uh, like those crates and, and shipping materials that are just thrown out on the side of the road. They turn those into their homes. Uh, most of the people that we were dealing with are third or fourth generation of people who have had no education. Therefore, they cannot get jobs. Their kids grow up on the streets. They don't, they don't know how to read. So we had a lot of different ministries we were doing for them. That included things like teaching the children uh, how to read and how to write and how to do math, how to speak English, so that they could get out of that socioeconomic status, so they could get a good job. It included taking bag after bag after bag of donations of beans and rice to them so they would have meals, because if we didn't do that, they would be scrounging in dumpsters and begging on street corners, and we wanted to help them. But it also included sharing the gospel to them because feeding their stomach is not the same as feeding their soul. So we would ensure that as we were doing this, we were proclaiming the gospel. And the churches in that city, Mojidas Cruzes, was, were filled with people who had come to know Christ because of this ministry. And so I'm thankful for that. Right after God ended my time there in, Italy, in Brazil... I went to Italy, and while I was in Italy, I was serving alongside of a church plant in a city called Udine, and while I was in Udine, I was involved in a lot of different evangelism and ministry and outreach and church planting and all that stuff, and the ministry was so different than what I had experienced in Brazil. There, in Brazil, I was serving the poorest of the poor who had many physical external needs. When I went to Italy, nobody needed anything. It's the land of Ferrari and Gucci and Armani, and nobody wants you to give them anything. If I were to give them a bag of beans and rice, they would be offended at me. Not only that, just because of the fact that I was American, they didn't want me to tell them anything. 
they, they're Italian too, so Anthony, you can back me up on this maybe. There's a little bit that they don't want to talk to you anyway if you're not Italian. So as we were there uh, sharing with them, ministry had to take a very different approach. But what I want you to see is in the scope of eternity, there's actually virtually no difference between the two groups of people. They both have the most important need in common, which is that they both need Jesus. They both need salvation. So the approach of sharing the gospel should never ignore people's physical or emotional needs, but it also must go beyond them. Those types of things are not intrinsically evangelism. Secondly, friendship is not necessarily evangelism. There is a huge movement that has existed here in the United States for the better part of 40 years called friendship evangelism. Some people call it organic evangelism. I am absolutely not against having friends. I am not against meeting people and talking to people who are not saved. Those are good and even necessary things for us. We are supposed to do those things. However, what I've seen happen most of the time is it usually looks like somebody being a friend while intentionally suppressing the gospel, not talking about the gospel because they don't want to offend their friend. So they hide away what they know to be true because they don't want this person to reject them. But if that person is going to be drawn to Christ, when you share the gospel with them, it will be a scent of life to them, and they'll listen. If they're not being drawn to Christ, they will hear that and push away. I have a friend, Ed Moore. He is one of my mentors and and former pastors, and he will often be asked by new Christians, do I need to leave my old friends? Now that I'm saved, do I need to, to get away from them? And the answer varies based on the person's circumstances, but his answer is usually something like this. He usually says, probably not because they're going to leave you. Probably not because they will want nothing to do with you. When you really come to Christ, you begin to smell like Christ. You begin to think like Christ and act like Christ and be around Christ and fixate your mind on Christ as you're reading the word. And that just comes out of you as you're sharing your life around somebody. And if that person is opposed to Christ, they're probably going to leave you. That's what happened to me when I got really serious about the gospel. Many years ago in high school and college, all the people that I was close to that didn't really care about Christ, man, they backed away pretty quick because they don't want to have anything to do with it. So friendship evangelism, if you're doing that, just make sure it's actually evangelism. Share the gospel with them. Holy living is not necessarily evangelistic. There are many people who have told me that they don't really need to say anything about Jesus because they just live it. I live Jesus, so I don't have to say anything about him. There's that quote that often people usually give uh, tribute to St. Francis of Assisi, which I don't think was actually his words. Uh, Preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. It's always necessary because the gospel is words. It is made up of words. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? By the word of Christ. It is necessary to use words. If you're just living a nice life, people just think you're a nice guy. My neighbors that are unsaved are probably a lot nicer than I am. That doesn't make you a Christian. When it says in in, uh, Matthew chapter 5, I think it's around verse 31, 32, somewhere in there. He says, when they see your good works... Let them see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Most of the time, people who say these types of things, just preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words, are often the types of people who are ignoring the fact that those people don't know where to give the credit. When you just are a nice guy, they're like, oh, I like that guy. And they're giving you the praise. They should be able to see you, see your good works, and then say, wow, he must really love that God of his. He must really love that Savior that he talks about. So, 
it is necessary to use words. People will occasionally point to the Philippian jailer and say, no, it doesn't. Look at, look at the example here. Well, while Paul and, and Silas were singing at midnight, they were singing hymns. And what happened? God sent an earthquake. And then all of a sudden, that jailer who's about to impale himself with his sword cries out and says, what must I do to be saved? Well, pay close attention because he's not saved yet. He asks them, what must I do? And the gospel comes through words. There will be circumstances where your life can point to someone coming to the, to the faith, but you still must tell them the gospel. Just like Paul said that you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you must also teach that they must confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. You can't just do the good actions and expect that they'll understand substitutionary atonement. It doesn't work that way. So what is evangelism? If all that stuff is not what evangelism is, what is evangelism so that we know what to do with it? Here's going to be our working definition. I stole this from J. Max Stiles. I did not write this, but this is a good working definition that's short, simple, and easy to remember. It is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. I am teaching somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ with the aim to persuade. The evangelism is, by its very nature, confrontational. It is offering spiritual life to somebody who is spiritually dead. It is giving light to someone who is in darkness. It is the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. Now, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, I'm not a big fan of a lot of movie franchises, but I like the Mission Impossible movies. I think the first Mission Impossible movie uh, is probably the, the movie that's not animated that I've seen the most in my life. Uh, I grew up with having just a few VHS tapes, and that was one of them, and I watched it over and over and over. I could probably tell you almost every line in the movie. Probably not healthy for me to grow up that way, but... <laughs> I like those movies, and, and there's a new one coming out this year, uh, just a couple weeks from now. So one thing that I will occasionally do is I'll occasionally watch a movie online. I'll stream it, but I don't have time for watching movies most of the time, so I'll speed it up to about three times speed and turn on the subtitles, and I'll just kind of watch it. I know what's happening in these movies. I've seen them before, so I don't need to pay that close attention. But something really caught my attention this time. As I was watching, I watched in the last maybe six or seven weeks, number two, three, and four, uh, two is horrible, but I noticed something at the very beginning, and it's just this thing that is in all of them. They say something that you will surely recognize. They give a mission to this person, Ethan Hunt, usually the main character, and they will give him a mission somehow, like it's in his sunglasses, and it will say, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is blah, 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 blah. This will destruct in five seconds, and then throws them off, and they explode, right? That is ridiculous, That is absolutely one of the most absurd things I've ever seen. There are a lot of parallels that we could make. Our mission is an impossible mission force, right? They're the impossible mission force. We are the impossible mission force. We're going to do something that we can't do. We're going to tell people who are spiritually dead, wake up, come alive. We can't do that on our own. We have no ability to do that. But we can't respond like this. Let me ask, this is the weirdest thing in the world. The IMF, the impossible mission force, says to these people who they pay, who are on the government's dime, here's your job if you want to do your job. Do we do that with soldiers or with people in the FBI? Here's your job if you want to do your job? I don't think so. We tell them, this is your job. This is what we pay you to do. You know your responsibility. Go do it. As Christians, we are not like this. It is not like God is saying, here's your mission should you choose to accept it. Your mission is to share the gospel regardless of whether or not you feel like that's your mission. If you are in Christ, that is your job description. Let's look at the quintessential passage in the entire Bible about evangelism. It's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It says this, And Jesus came to them, and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I want you to notice something very important here that's really kind of tricky to see in the English in our Bibles. I'll do it by showing you my t-shirt here. Uh, This is a shirt by the International Mission Board. The International Mission Board is the sending agency for the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest missions agency in the entire world. And so they gave me this free t-shirt when I was at their booth at some convention I went to. And I asked the guy, "Do do you know what this says? And he says, that says go. So we're giving this shirt to tell people they need to go. And I said, actually, this word doesn't say go at all. That's what it says in the English Bible. But this word is not the word go. Does it even look like the word go to us? This is not the word for go in the Greek. This is an aorist passive participle, which you don't need to know anything about. But what you do need to know is in the Greek, this says as you are going. This just takes for granted the fact that you're going to go. It just takes for granted the fact that disciples actually take the gospel with them wherever they're traveling. There is a command to take it to the ends of the earth. But here what he's saying is, as you're going, and the actual verb of the sentence is not go, but make disciples. Your job is, as you're going, make disciples. That is what Christians are called to do. That is our mandate. And what are some of the reasons that people who are genuinely saved don't do this? I need your help. Why don't Christians evangelize? Why don't Christians make disciples? What do you think? Yeah, David. They're embarrassed. Dig a little deeper on that. Why would somebody be embarrassed? It's strange to the culture, yeah. We're aliens in this world. Right, Gary. Afraid of rejection. Yeah, fear of, fear of rejection. Yeah, I feel that. What else? What are other reasons people don't, Jake? Feel insecure in being trained to properly share the gospel. I don't know everything I need to know to share the gospel. Right, that's important. Yeah, I've felt that before too. Any other reasons that you can think of? Yeah. I just like to serve. Do, 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 do. We're definitely going to talk about that a little bit more. Any other reasons you guys can think of? Yeah. You don't always live it. So you're afraid of sharing the gospel with somebody and then seeing you fail. Yeah. I've been there. Totally been there. Absolutely. And we're going to see that a little bit later. That's a form of self-righteousness because basically we're saying, because I'm not perfect, I can't tell an imperfect person to go to Christ. When the reality is my sin should make me say, I need Jesus. You also need Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. Any others that you can think of? One more. Timing. Yeah. So do you mean like, I just don't know when I would fit this into my schedule, or like, it's just not the right time yet? Like, I, she's, I'm just too busy. It's not one of those things I, I do. I have priorities. Right. Well, we're going to talk about these things. Let me ask another question. What are some of the reasons that we should or we must, if I can put it that way, Evangelize. What are some reasons that we should or must make disciples? Yeah, Jim. Yeah, we, we just read it, right? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, right? So that's one, yeah? And what is the chief end of man? 
Amen. So that's definitely true. Any other reasons we can think of? Yeah. You don't know if that person's elect or not elect. Yeah, so you're speaking now against hyper-Calvinists, which is good. We definitely never want to be hyper-Calvinistic. Let me kind of pin... Yeah. I love that person's soul. I don't want that person to burn in hell, right? That's, that's, that's an important reason. Now, all of these things are significant. All these things that we've mentioned are really vital, but I think we've actually kind of stepped around the main reason. I think we've actually, oh, you got it? Well, that's definitely a part of it. Yeah. They're not going to know unless somebody's a, a missionary to them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not prepared. See, see, I, I think here we're still stepping around the major thing and I want to land on this for a little while tonight. I have actually heard a lot of teaching on evangelism before. And I think oftentimes people start in a place that's not ultimately helpful, or at least was not to me. Um, But what I'd like to do tonight is to point you to the primary reason underlining why we should or must do evangelism. Because if we get this right, then I think it propels us like an engine towards actually doing it. And here's the reason. I think the most significant reason that we fail to be as zealous as we should be in our evangelistic efforts is that we we lack the appropriate love for God and appropriate fear of God. Now, what is the primary reason that we, that, we should make disciples. It's this, that God is worthy of worship from all people. God is worthy to be praised by all people. Jesus is worthy to have the bride for which he died. Now, love of God and fear of God are the only two true engines that will propel our ongoing, lifelong, heartfelt evangelism. Now, rarely do I read a book in my life. I, I, I read a lot of books, but rarely have I ever read one. And I literally have to stop and put the book down and process for a long period of time. Like, wow, I just got punched in the gut with whatever that just said. And I have to completely rearrange my thinking. Outside of the Bible, that rarely has ever happened to me. But I can remember the first time it did. When I was in high school, I read this book right here, Let the Nations Be Glad. And I got three sentences in before I had to put it down and completely rearrange my understanding of evangelism. Let me explain a little bit of the background. When I was growing up, I grew up in a church that was a strong promoter of evangelism and missions, but I think they missed the heart of what it is. And I, since I was 13 years old, I have gone on at least one mission trip, I think every year of my life. I was trying to calculate that today. I think that's true. I was very involved in missions when I was 13. I went on my first one, went away for three months to Australia, and I just ever since, always going on mission trips. Well, it wasn't until I was, I think, 17 years old and I picked up this book, I actually completely changed my understanding of what evangelism and missions are. Just as we were talking earlier, what is evangelism? Simply this, making disciples. What is missions? It's making disciples over there somewhere, right? It's uprooting your life and going to do disciple making somewhere else. So when I'm talking about missions here and evangelism, I'm doing them Uh, overlapping them a little bit on purpose. But what I want you to understand is, as I came to this book, these words that I read, I think are true, and I think have probably shaped my ministry more than anything else extra-biblical I've ever read. And I want to read them to you and encourage you with them. Here are the first three sentences of the book, once you get past the foreword. 
if I can find it. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. That's when I shut the book and put it down. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. We are sharing the gospel because Jesus is worthy to be praised by that person's lips. And that person will praise him. That person will eventually bow down to him. That person's knees will be on the ground, whether that's on this earth or at the judgment seat. And I want it to be now. He, was, he deserves that honor and that praise right now. And what I want you to understand is that as we are going through all of this that we're talking about, the central purpose, the central motive that we need to have is not all those other things that we talked about. Those are good reasons to share the gospel, but the main one is because Jesus is worthy. We make disciples because he deserves them. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 explains and it tells what's coming in the age of the church when it says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're doing when we evangelize. That's what we're doing. We're helping the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to cover the earth like the water covers the sea. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution before? I've done that. Is that it? Really? Seriously? Nobody else has done that? I've done that. Man, how many of you made it the whole year? Nobody. Who made it to February, right? Nobody. Well, we've got an overachiever in the crowd. We don't, we don't actually have the ability to just say, I'm going to change and then change. We don't do that very well as human beings. We are creatures of habit. And if you make it your motivating factor to just say, I'm going to psych myself up. I'm just going to go do evangelism. That's, that's my motivation. It's the Nike approach. Just do it. That's what most evangelism classes teach you. They, they stir up your emotions and they get you excited and you go try and then those emotions go away. They teach you a little bit about a Bible verse and then a few statistics and then they say something along the lines of just get out there and try it. But what they don't teach you is your motivation must be the love of Christ. And if it's not, any, if it's anything less than love for God and fear of God, you're not going to st- stick doing it. You're going to stop. So you might say, what about being motivated by obedience? Jim said that earlier, right? Why do we do it? Because we're told to do it, right? We're told to do it. Isn't obedience supposed to be our motivating factor? Well, yes, but the Bible does command us to evangelize and it is something we must do. But I would also say, doesn't Jesus say, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Our obedience to Christ, genuine obedience is born out of love for Christ. So yes, we do that because we, we need to obey. We evangelize because it's obedience, but we obey because we love him. So I win, right, if that's the argument. But what about this way? Some people will say, what about loving their souls? I love them. That needs to be my motivation. I think that the majority of people who are part of the seeker-sensitive movement have good intentions. They're not seeking to hurt the gospel. But what they do by, by shrinking it down and making it more palatable is they take away the power of it. And I think what's happening oftentimes is they're saying, I love them. I don't want to scare them. Well, w- when we say it's all about loving the other person, then we begin deciding what love looks like for that other person. And I also want to ask, what is the great commandment? What's the first great commandment? Who can tell me? You guys know it. Love the Lord your God with? We're supposed to love God with basically everything, right? Everything that you've got, everything that makes you you, that's supposed to be loving towards God, right? What is the second great commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So the first 
order is to get your relationship with God straight, love him, and that overflows into a love for other, other people. Genuine love for God always results in a genuine love for other people. We see that, for example, as an argument that John makes in 1 John. So when we're looking at this idea of what if, I, what if I just love them so much, shouldn't that be my motivating factor? Well, if you love that person more than God, then they're your God. You need to love God primarily and honor him and desire to, to worship him, and that will cause you to be motivated properly to evangelize. So let me ask the question. If this is true, what I'm saying, that we need to be primarily motivated by a love for God and a fear of God, then how is it that we can grow in having a love for God and a fear for God? I want to just take a moment to discuss that. Let me ask what motivated the apostles. What motivated Paul? Uh, let's see what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. He is seeking to persuade people to the kingdom of God because he fears the Lord, right? That is his motivating factor. The apostles were also motivated, as we saw, by the first great commandment, which leads to the second great commandment. So if our primary need is to grow in a deeper fear, like Paul had, and a deeper love for God, like the apostles had, then how do we get that? How do we get to the place where they were? Because I feel like this is something that we often miss. This is our primary need as a church body, is to grow in our love for Christ and our fear of God. How do we do that? I want to be very careful here not to get legalistic. Because this is the point where it's really easy to get legalistic. This is the point where it's really easy to say, here's a list, do this thing, one, two, three, poof, bada bing, bada boom, you're all good. Now you love God more and you fear God more. That's not how this works. But what I do want to explain to you is that there is something we can learn from the scripture about how to become more appropriately fearful of God and how to have a more rich love for God. First, how do we grow in appropriate fear of God? Consider what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. What happens with him? You know, this man who is, who is, he goes into the throne room of God in this vision and he sees God on the throne. What does he do? He just breaks down and says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He's broken to his core. Basically the exact same thing happens with Peter when he is called in Luke chapter five. You remember that story? Jesus multiplies the fish and they, they're trying to pull them in with all the nets. And then what, what does Peter do? He gets down at the, fa- the feet of Jesus on his face and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Whenever we come into contact with God's attributes or his character or his historical workings and we see him for who he really is, then we have an appropriate fear of him. The reason we don't fear God is we imagine that God is a lot less than he is. The reason we don't have an appropriate fear for God is because we imagine him to be very much like us. We imagine him to be small and forgetful and finite, but he's none of those things. And if we have an appropriate transformation taking place in our mind, what is transforming is our perception of God. Reading our Bibles brings us into a deeper awareness of who God is. It tells us what God is like. Meditating on the word causes us to be shaken by the greatness of God. And hearing faithful, biblical, Bible-centered, not watered-down sermons helps us to see more clearly God's aseity and his eternality and his wrath and his love and his sovereignty and his righteousness and his goodness, his eternality, his holiness, his immutability, his impassibility, his impeccability, his imminence, his transcendence, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, all that stuff. If we get that, we will be completely in awe of God. We will have an appropriate fear of God. Not that God is my enemy, but that God is amazing. That he is great. That we have every need to respect and honor who he is because he is worthy of that. 
And as we see God more clearly for who he really is, our faulty self-made images of God begin to fall away. And that's when we see ourselves appropriately. That's when we see ourselves as finite and unworthy and desperate in nature. And we will see this world like it really is. We begin to see the world as it really is. We begin to see the, the treasures of this world as temporary and worthless. And we see that things are not how we imagined them to be. That's what happened to Isaiah. That's what happened to Peter. That's what happens to us when we come into confrontation with the living God. And we have the word of God that we can do that every day. We can open it and be taught directly from God as he has given us his word. And we can do that in the community of the body and be trained by one another in righteousness. Notice that nothing around Isaiah or Peter changed when, when this transformation took place. Jesus was always Jesus God was always on the throne, right? But Isaiah goes and he sees the reality and now there's a change. Peter saw Jesus before the miracle and after the miracle. What changed? Jesus was always Jesus, but then he was completely broken and in awe of who Jesus was because he saw him more clearly and then began to fear him appropriately. So how do you grow in fear of God? By the renewing of your mind, through getting your mind in the word of God and around the people of God who discuss the things of God. So how do we grow in a love for God? How do we do that? Our love for God is never something that is conjured up by our own strength. The Bible never teaches us that. And we shouldn't think of it in that way. Our love is always reflexive. It is a response to what God has done for us, to his love for us. For example, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. What in the world is going on in this verse? He is telling these people, you think you loved God first? You didn't. God loved you first. That is the origin of your, of your love. Your love is reflexive. It is a response to his love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, Jesus says. Abide in my love, John fifteen nine. His love for us is real. It is eternal. It is unchanging. It is infinite. And we are called to soak that in. That's what abide means. Soak in my love. Meditate upon it. Live in the reality of that. It's not changing. I love you, Jesus says to them. Our love for God is never going to be larger than our awareness of his love for us. And that is key in understanding evangelism. When God gives his love to undeserving sinners like us, it's called grace. It is God's unmerited favor. It's his kindness. The apostles depended on this grace to be the anchor as they evangelized. Let me show you how they relied on the past grace, present grace, and future grace of God as the anchor, the the thing that gave them power to evangelize. Let's look first at past grace. Let's go back to that quintessential command that we told you about. They call it the great commissioning. Um, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice here that Jesus grounds this command to his disciples in his identity as the king. He is telling them to do what they are going to do because he is who he is. Because he has all authority. 
All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Therefore, everything belongs to him. He is the rightful king over all people. The gospel of Matthew has literally 1,068 verses before verse 18 right here. And when we arrive at that verse, everything that has been leading up to that point, every one of those verses is purposeful. Every one of them is telling you the story of the perfect life of Jesus and the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. Those are not meaningless things. You can't just pluck this section out and say, this is all we need to pay attention to. All of that stuff is leading up to, I have all authority. All of that stuff is leading up to, the the book of Matthew is a book about kings and kingdoms. Over and over and over, we see the teaching of the kingdom of God in the book of Matthew. He is teaching us, I am the king. And here he's telling them, I am the king, and I want you to know that I am king, so now you are my servants, and you have my authority with you as you go. That's why he can say he has all authority given to him. So based on that reality, the disciples went, and that's why we have a church right here in Massapequa, because they were faithful to stand on the promise of the past grace of Christ, that he had died for them and raised for them and is reigning for them. Now, we have to ground our evangelistic efforts in the past grace of God. There are solid truths like this that we must hold fast to. We know Jesus died for us. We know that he saved us, the ungodly. Our testimonies have a lot of different circumstances. If I were to tell my story and you told yours, there's a lot of different details in there. But really, ultimately, when you boil them down, they're exactly the same story, that we were ruined in our sin, we were dead in our trespasses, yet by the grace of God, he came and made us alive and gave us faith because of Jesus and his death on the cross. That's our story. If we're in Christ, we share that. And as we hold fast to that reality, keeping that in the forefront of our lives, that gives us enduring power to proclaim the gospel out of love for the one who sought us and bought us with his redeeming love. That is what they held on to. As they went, you saw those verses, they went based upon the notion of the past grace of their king. I know what he's done for me. Now I'm going to go proclaim the gospel because of what he's already done. But don't miss that there's also present grace that is a motivating factor for evangelism. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, the last verse, it says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That is a promise of present grace. Right now, Christ is with you if you are saved. And as you are sharing the gospel, Christ is with you if you are saved. He is with you always, even to the end of the age. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's what we want. We want to give our testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it says, notice this, and great grace was upon them all. Where does that come from? That comes from God being with you always. There was a grace present with them. The love of God was evident all over them. I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel and you just walked away from the conversation saying like, God, thank you. That was not me. That was all you, God. That's what I think they're talking about here. They were recognizing Jesus was with me. The spirit of God was working through me. I was saying words, but I was just way over my head and God worked through me. And that's something that I think they were experiencing in these passages. Consider the way that this looks in Paul's life. When Paul first went to Corinth, we read these words in Acts chapter 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now pause for a second. Why would God say that to Paul? Why would God say these words to Paul? Don't be silent. Don't stop. 
because I think he was, he was afraid, he was going to be silent, and he was going to stop. And the Lord said to Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? For I am with you, the present grace of Christ. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. Now that is not an ongoing enduring promise because he got beat up a lot. He got stoned until they thought he was dead at certain points. This guy was told a singular promise at this point, but the I am with you is a promise grounded way back in Matthew 28. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He was going to be quiet. He was just going to sneak out of town and leave, it appears. It seems like that to me. But instead, God says, remember, I'm with you. And he stayed there proclaiming the gospel until that church became the second largest church of the early church era. The Lord communicated to Paul in a vision on that occasion. But watch this. Later on, the same thing occurs. But Jesus doesn't appear in a vision. But Paul still knows he's there. When Paul was about to be put to death, he wrote his final letter, which is the book of 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last chapter that Paul ever wrote before he was beheaded, we read about Paul's trial before the Roman governor. And it says, quote, in verses chapter 4, 16 through 17, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Paul was alone. He had been abandoned really by everybody. And this was a recipe for fear. If anything is a recipe for fear, this is in the face of the most extreme circumstances, literally facing down death. But notice what he says. He says, may it not be charged against them, those people that deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. What do we want to do? We want to proclaim the gospel so that everyone in our circles might hear it. How do we have the power to do that? How did he have the power to do that? Because of the present grace of Christ. He knew Jesus is with me, even though everyone else has deserted me. Sometimes you feel really alone in evangelism. I don't think Jesus appeared in a dream here. It doesn't seem like that. It seems like he was on trial and, and it doesn't seem like he had a vision. It seems rather that Paul learned to trust in the present grace of Jesus and know that he is with me even to the end of the age, even to the end of my life. So that's what gave him boldness to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what gives us faith and casts out fear. If you want a fear-crushing, fear-demolishing tool, trust in the presence of Christ in your life. Who then should you be fearful of, right? The, over and over and over, there's this phrase that the psalmist uses, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? I love that phrase. Like, big deal. Like, you think that you're going to hurt me by disagreeing with me, but listen, I've got a God who owns all of this stuff and he's on my side. If God is for me, who can be against me? And that's what is holding Paul up as he is proclaiming the gospel, even in the midst of wolves. So how can we do that? By trusting in the present grace of Christ. When we share our faith, it's vital to know that the power of God is within us and the Holy Spirit is filling us with his power. Jesus is there and we are never, ever, ever sharing the gospel on our own. Let's talk about future grace. Part of the reason that we fail to evangelize comes down to the fact that we are very short-sighted people. We think only about the present. We fail to think about life in terms of eternity, Paul was rooted firmly in the belief that suffering for the gospel is worth it. 
because of future grace. Let me give you just a couple very familiar examples. We're not going to dig into them because I think you know them. But Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, it says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, which means between life and death. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. I'd rather be dead right now and be in heaven. I don't think most of us are there, right? But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your part or on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you. Paul says to die is gain. It's better to be in heaven. He loved Jesus literally more than he loved life itself. Death is just a door. Paul understands that for the believer to go to the eternal joy of Christ. However, in this passage, he also argues that to live right now is Christ. He defines this by explaining how it is necessary for him to be on this earth a little while longer for their sake. God is allowing him to live, quote, for your progress and joy in the faith. I'm alive right now, not because I need to do anything else other than your, encourage your progress and joy in the faith. Paul's disciple-making effort here was motivated by the fact that God is deserving of every last drop of his life. Everything else I've got, I'm giving it to God. I'm not living here for my sake. I'm not collecting a bunch of goods for my retirement. That is not my goal right now. I am here simply to proclaim the goodness of God to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now when he writes this, he's talking about suffering. And we use this kind of as like a broad strokes approach. And I've done this too, and I think it's okay to do this. We say anytime you're suffering as a Christian, this is true. Your suffering right now is actually for your good because God is allowing it to happen. But the specific kind of suffering that he was experiencing was kickback from people who didn't like his preaching of the gospel. He was being persecuted for teaching. And so as we see here, he's saying that's all worth it. All of that persecution that I'm getting for sharing the gospel, that's fine with me because there's a greater weight of glory that's coming. There's something bigger in the future. All this stuff, is, it feels big now, but compared to eternity, that is light and momentary. So Christian, we need to rely on the future glory of heaven, even as we share our faith, because we have nothing to fear. We talked earlier about you know, the fear of, of, of people thinking we're dumb, fear of not feeling that we're prepared enough. Well, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. All that stuff, all that stuff that we think could come against us, that's light and momentary affliction if it happens. There's nothing more present or urgent or valuable to us than the grace of God. That is important for us to get. So let's hold fast to the love of God like the apostles did, like Paul did. Let's cling to the past and the present and the future grace of Christ in order to be emboldened in our efforts to declare the saving nature of the cross. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a shift here for a little bit. A woman once approached a very famous evangelist, you, know, you probably know of him, D.L. Moody, and she went to him to air this grievance with him. The woman said, Mr. Moody, 
I don't like the way you do your evangelism. Have you heard this story, anybody? So he, he responds to her and says, well, ma'am, let me ask you, how do you do it? And she responded, well, sir, I don't. So Mr. Moody responded to her, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. But I do think there are ways that people share the gospel that are unhelpful. There are things that people do as they're trying to proclaim the gospel that they do that are not the best approach. What are some unhelpful approaches that you can think of, that you've seen or heard of, of sharing the gospel? Things that just aren't very beneficial in the way that we come across. Yeah, James. Yeah, it's like hellfire and brimstone kind of thing, old school. It's almost like they're cheering, right? You're going to go to hell. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. Yeah. Just say these words, and you're going, yep, you're going right to heaven, yep. All grace and no wrath, that's right, yeah. Like, oh, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. I haven't seen that as much. I haven't seen that as much in people who actually evangelize. I feel like most people who think that don't actually share the gospel almost ever. Yeah. What are some other inappropriate responses that you can think of? Yeah. Isn't that the culture we live in, right? Like, if I can just prove that I, I have a better argument than you, then I win and I'm better. Like, that's, that's the Facebook culture that we live in, where if I just have a better vocabulary or if I have more letters after my name, then obviously I'm going to win this argument, right? We, we, tr- we tend to get, like, pushy and like a bully sometimes. Sometimes people are self-righteous, right? Sometimes people are all about fear. I just want to tell you what you need to be scared of. You, you need to be afraid right now, right? Sometimes we're fearful and our approach is just... You know, we're just completely devastated by the fact that I'm approaching this person to share the gospel and we're just afraid for ourselves. Well, I want to take the rest of our time tonight in our lecture time to just show you that if we fear God properly and if we love him properly, we're going to evangelize properly because it erases these faulty notions if we really fear God and love God well. Do you remember how Saul of Tarsus was converted? Do you remember what happened to him? He was going into Damascus. It was his desire to go there, and he had papers to do this, to arrest all the Christians. And as he's going there, God, Jesus Christ, appears to him on the road, knocks him off his horse, and talks to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me to have this conversation? And Saul goes into the city, and he waits for three days. You remember this? Well, that shook Saul to his core, but that didn't save him. That did shake him up, but that's not when he became a Christian. If you read the story, that was actually not the time of his new birth. You know what Jesus didn't do? Jesus didn't share the gospel with Paul. Jesus didn't tell him about his death and burial and resurrection and say, just believe in me. Do do you see that? It's not in there. Jesus doesn't actually do this. This is something that is so shocking to me because for so many years, people will talk about the conversion of Saul as the Damascus Road conversion. He was not converted on the road to Damascus. This is really important because if you think that's how people get converted, you're going to wait for your neighbor to have Jesus pop in front of their car and you're not going to share the gospel with them. But that is not how it works. Jesus didn't share the gospel with him. Why not? It's because that's not how the gospel has ever operated. God has designed us to be his ambassadors. Jesus could do that. He could just 
pop out of the air and share the gospel of, of his truth with whoever he wanted to. And he could regenerate them on the spot and they could believe. But that's not how it has ever worked. It didn't work that way for Paul. And it does not work that way for us because that was not, not God's plan for building his church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul writes, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What, what is an ambassador? It's somebody who is part of another country. They are, they are citizens of another nation, but they don't live there. Like we have an ambassador in Japan right now. He's an American, but he lives in Japan. We are citizens of heaven, but we live right here. And our job here is to represent our king there. And so as we are operating as ambassadors, we are trying to get people to immigrate into our kingdom, right? Our goal is to say, yes, our king wants more people in his kingdom. So as we are ambassadors in this place, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. And then he defines that God making his appeal through us. Our king is choosing to use feeble, weak for the most of us, we can say relatively unintelligent people to stand in front of other people and tell them about him. I can do that, not because I'm anything special, but because he is. I get to be an ambassador, which is a position I don't deserve. I don't deserve to be the one making the appeal for God, but he lets me. He allows me to preach the gospel. And so he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. Literally, I'm a messenger for Jesus. When we share our faith, we are messengers for Jesus. So he tells them, so I say to you, be reconciled to God. That's amazing. We can tell other people, be reconciled to God. How can I say that? Because I have the authority of the one who has all authority. He is my king, and he sent me on a mission. Now, we're not required, but as citizens of God's kingdom, he has graciously allowed us to serve as ambassadors on his behalf. So this is something that we do. This is our calling. Paul's conversion, he had an ambassador, right? There was somebody who came to him. Jesus appeared, that didn't save him. But Ananias came and shared. Let me read that story to you. I'm gonna do a little running commentary here, not much. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now notice that God does not give Ananias all the details. He doesn't tell Ananias all of what has happened to Paul, or Saul at this point, or he was always Saul and Paul, but... He doesn't say all of the details of what's going on. He doesn't explain the experiences. He doesn't say, when you get there, you're going to be fine. You're not going to get arrested. He just says, go, do this, share the gospel with this man. Now, we don't often know what's going on in somebody's life. Some of the hardest people who have pushed away the gospel the most, you share the gospel with them and they break. How does that happen? It's because God has been procedurally breaking them down. And you just don't know that. You don't see into their heart. You don't know what's happening behind the scenes. Just like Ananias didn't know all the details. And we also see that he was clearly afraid. Verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how evil, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. We see in this, there's some trepidation. 
And if that were to happen to us, and God said to us, I want you to go talk to somebody who has the authority to arrest you, we would probably be shaken in our boots a little bit too, right? So he comes to, God comes to him and says, go. He seems to be a little bit fearful. Earlier, we noted that fear of man is one of the great hindrances of the proclamation of the gospel, is it not? Ananias was clearly somewhat afraid of Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a terrorist. He was a licensed murderer out to destroy people exactly like Ananias. But God gave him a mandate to go and preach the gospel to this man. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is chosen. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and he entered the house. Ananias went and he shared the gospel with with Saul. We're going to get there in a second. But he did this even at the risk of his own life. This tells me that he esteemed obedience to Christ as more significant than even his own life. That shows me this man really loved God. Let's continue in the passage here. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, please understand, it's important to note, the arrival of the Holy Spirit in somebody, in a single person, is always synonymous with saving faith in this portion of the book of Acts. When somebody comes and has the Spirit fill them, that is representative of them coming to know Christ in a saving way. It was at this point that Saul was saved. And God gave a physical illustration of what was happening in a spiritual condition inside of Saul. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So his physical eyes had been blinded to represent his spiritual blindness. Now he has come to genuine faith. The Spirit has entered him. His physical eyes are healed and his spiritual eyes are healed as well. Consider that Ananias did not go in to this conversation like a jerk. Who do you think you are, man? You came here to arrest people like us. Well, let me tell you what, my God is bigger than you. He's going to crush you like an ant. No, there are people that share the gospel like that. That's not what Ananias did. Ananias was humble. He was obedient. He was not spitting fire. He was not being self-righteous. He went in not like an intellectual bully, but like an ambassador should, representing the one who sent them. An ambassador's responsibility is to have as much as humanly possible a reflection of that person's policies. I need to be as close as I possibly can to the one who sent me. I represent him. I'm not here representing myself. My rules are not my rules. They're his rules. My conversation with you needs, needs uh, my conversation with an unsaved person needs to reflect what Jesus would speak like if he was speaking to an unsaved person. So I'm going to close with this for this portion of our meeting. There's one final deterrent to evangelism that I never addressed yet, and it's that we are afraid it's not going to work. We're afraid that these people aren't really going to get saved. I'm going to tell them this, and then they're just going to go on living their life of sin, so why even tell them? That is one of the biggest deterrents that I've experienced in my own life. I have a doubt that God is going to actually operate. We don't share our faith because we don't think it will be effective. This is where having good theology is really important. I mean, it's always important, but this, this specific instance, if you don't have good theology here, evangelism is so hard. But if you know this, evangelism becomes second nature. We know God is going to save his people. We know it. And we know that God is going to use us to do it. We know it. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep will hear my voice 
and they will follow me. We are promised in John 6, 37, all the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. Isaiah chapter 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will always do what God's word is intended to do. Now, sometimes that means that God is going to harden a person's heart. You're going to share the gospel and he's going to harden their heart just like he did with Pharaoh. There are some times that God is going to slowly soften their heart. You're going to share the gospel with them. And then next week, Anthony's going to share the gospel with them. And next week, David's going to share the gospel with them. And 10 years down the road, they're going to be driving in their car. And God's going to open that conversation up in their memory. And they're going to be shocked and brought to tears saying, I need to be saved. You don't know. You don't know if God's hardening their heart or if he's slowly opening it. Or sometimes what happens is you share the gospel with somebody. It might be the first time they've heard it. God breaks them. He will do whatever he wants to do with his message. Paul planted the seed. Apollos watered the seed. That's what we do. God's the one that brings the increase. That is not our job. We cannot be fruitful. We can only be faithful. God produces fruit. We just cast the seeds out there to let them grow. So God is the one who is giving who receives all the glory. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. But God is also the one doing all the work. We're just doing the easy stuff. We just get to tell people the love of Christ. And God does the hard stuff. He changes their heart. So let's be faithful to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's do that as we go and make disciples of our friends and our family members, our coworkers, even our enemies. But I want to ask before we close this part in prayer, if anybody has any questions for this stuff we've been talking about. Any thoughts, questions, concerns you'd like to share? Must have been immensely thorough. Very good. Well, let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, it is a great honor and a joy that we get to do this. We get to be ambassadors. Lord, you have given us such an honored position to be able to carry the gospel, this treasure, and tell people we have a treasure that they are able to have and they pay nothing for it, They can't earn it, they can't buy it, but they can have it freely if they will believe in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that all of the work is done by the Father, that our regeneration is done by you. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust that you will. So, Father, please help us to do this faithfully, lovingly, setting Christ at the center of our focus, for he is worthy of all of our efforts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, it's almost 8.25. What we're going to do right now is if you have to go, you're welcome to go. I would love it if you could stay for a little bit, gather together into some small groups, and we want to do a couple things here. First, I have a couple questions that I'm going to put up on the screen. Do we have those? We have three questions. I would love for you to discuss these. We're going to try to close out around 9 o'clock. If you need to go, that's totally fine. If you're able to stay, these three questions are good discussion questions. Number one, what are your personal biggest hindrances in sharing the gospel? Secondly, how does growing in the fear and love of God uh, grow your zeal to make disciples? And finally, what does it mean to hold fast to the present, uh, past, and future grace of Christ? And how does that relate?